1: Hello, and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television, and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement, and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. The acclaimed theatre director Peter Hall referred to Geraldine James as one of the great English classical actresses. Graduating from Drama Centre, she embarked on a theatre career that would see her nominated for a Tony and winning the Drama Desk Award for her role as Portia in the Broadway revival of The Merchant of Venice. Her film credits include Gandhi, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and 45 Years. Since 2017, she has starred in the Netflix series *And with an E. Geraldine has been nominated four times for the BAFTA TV Best Actress Award for Dummy, Band of Gold, The Sins, and The Jewel in the Crown, where she played the character Sarah Layton. I caught up with her to talk about that experience earlier this year. Hello, welcome to the show. And uh, my guest today is Geraldine James, the wonderful Geraldine James. And we'll be talking about um, Jewel in the Crown from uh, 1984 and her character Sarah Layton. Um, I've, I've covered this in the podcast before because I've spoken to Charles Dance of course Charles actually did say that because you'd been in India before you were sort of like team leader for them all when they it got was. there but you must have great fond memories of this time do
2: you it was incredible I'd been there on Gandhi the year before mm-hmm. and um in my research for my English character in Gandhi I'd read everything I could about India and I read the Raj Quartet and it was an extraordinary experience. It's the only time in my life I've actually read a book where I saw myself completely reflected in a character. I felt so connected with that character, Sarah Layton. Um, and Dickie Attenborough, who was directing Gandhi, said to me one day, Have you ever see, read anything in literature that you'd like to play? And I said, Yes. Funnily enough, I'm reading it now, The Raj Quartet. And he said, oh, they're doing that. Granada Television are doing a series of that. So I thought I was in India. And I thought, oh, well, there you are. That's, that's gone. And when I got back uh, to London, I spoke to my agent and said, do you know anything about this Raj Quartet? And he said, yes, you're up for You've got an audition next week for the part of Daphne Manners, which is <laughs> the other part. And I had this extraordinary dilemma when I got there and met the directors, Chris Morahan and Jim O'Brien. They, I told them I'd read the book and I'd absolutely loved it. And they said, Do you connect to any character in particular? And I had that terrible moment of going, Do I tell them the truth and say Sarah Layton and they'll go, Oh, sorry, that's been cast? Or do I, I know I'm up for Daphne Manners. Do I go, Yes, I'd love to play Daphne Manners, which wouldn't have been strictly speaking true. So I, I plunged in and I said, to Sarah Layton. And I took about eight months to convince them that I really. Could play it. Sorry, eight months. Eight months. I had, I, (laughs) they didn't, they'd just seen me. I'd done something, I'll tell you. I played Emma Hamilton in a very weird series about Nelson, Horatio Nelson. I played Emma Hamilton. And I had to put on a lot of padding and a lot of weight. So I was this massive Emma Hamilton, cause she was huge. She was like five foot nine, had huge feet. And, um, and they'd seen that and they went, no, that, that terrifying woman couldn't possibly be our Sarah Layton. So I had to keep going back in, uh, reading more and more episodes for them and talking about what I felt about the character and why I felt I, I understood her so well. And um, and eventually they they went okay. Yep,
1: it's yours. And what was it that drew you to Sarah? What, what was there, what qualities that you from the book did you really uh, chime with you?
2: A, a couple of things. I knew absolutely nothing. My my father was a doctor. He was nothing to do with the military. I knew nothing about India other than what I'd seen traipsing about in Asari after Ben Kingsley on, for four months on yeah. Gandhi, but. The character, she has a younger sister. I had a younger sister um, and we had a very sort of sparky relationship. She was always the pretty one. I was the clever one and the musical one. And we had huge battles between us. My mother drank and Sarah Layton's mum, Mildred, was a heavy drinker. And there was a scene in the book. I don't think it was even in the uh, the scripts eventually, but there was a scene in the book where they go to a public loo. They're in ladies' loo's, and she's in a cubicle next to her mother, and she can hear the rattle of a bottle being taken out of a brown paper bag, and she knows what's going on next door. And I said, "That's my. That's that's what I grew up doing." And I think, I think that sort of experience gives you a way into an understanding of that extraordinary character sarah because she was so internalized and she felt so out of place uh, and so different from all the people all the sort of posh young british people she her heart was for the for the native people and for the you know she sort of considered what it was like to be one of those servants who her mother just treated, just sort of bashed about and just didn't treat well at all. She has great empathy, doesn't she? Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And I just I I just responded to that very, very, very strongly. And it's there's a a lot of that is to do with being a child of an alcoholic Um, because we sort of have extended antennae. You know, we walk into a room and suss. We go, there's a danger point. I'm safe here. I can't go and talk to those people over there. And you just, you have this extraordinary wide view of any room you go into. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it's, it fascinates me though that, you know, Chris and Jim, the directors, they've been, they were very, very experienced. But even they look at the last character you played and go, oh, that's what she does. They don't, you know, it's it, you have to sort of convince them that you're an actress, that you can inhabit well, different it, roles. It, it, yeah,
2: absolutely. But in fairness to them, I think it was Dennis Foreman, who I absolutely adored, who was our sort of major, major exec producer at Granada. Yeah. And he he actually said to me once he came out to India and he said, I was the one who didn't want you to play this part. It was me. I, I didn't want you to do it because I saw you play Emma Hamilton and you and uh, he'd seen the thing I did way back, a thing called Dummy. Yes. When I played a profoundly deaf prostitute in Bradford, mm-hmm. the sort of offices to Sarah Layton. Mm-hmm. And people just do have this idea that actors can't what I like to call transform. You know, we no. approach a character and if it's hopefully different from a character we've played before, then we try to make this character real and truthful. Mm-hmm. But if you've been successful in that, then people go, oh, no, no. Well, you can't do that because you did that success- believably and successfully. So you're sort of hoist by your own petard in a way.
1: I mean, looking through, you know, for the interview, obviously I went back and looked at quite a lot of your work. I mean, it's so diverse. I mean, you, you do challenge yourself in very, very different roles, I mean, that's what you love as well, isn't it? It's about... Totally. Uh, but I mean, I've never different- wanted to
2: be myself. I've, I'm. I'm. That's why I've never been a star. I, I have never been a star. I've never been particularly recognised because uh, I hope that I'm quite different in different things I do. And I think essentially in the first place, I wanted to become an actor because I didn't want to be myself. So I had to pretend to be somebody else, uh, uh, as I'm sure most of us somewhere down the line did.
1: But there's a... The, the, I mean... Jewel in the Crown was such a phenomenal success. That must have changed for you just walking down the street. The people must have recognised you then. I mean, it was event television, wasn't it?
2: Jewel Jewel was absolutely extraordinary. Um, I remember that Tim, Charlie, Art, Susie, I think, and me all went to New York for a, a, you know, a Beano that was sort of when they were shown some episode, at great big press do. But I remember walking down a street in New York and, and being mobbed and being absolutely terrified because these people came out and sort of grabbed me and wanted to take me in and sort of sit me down and give me cups of tea and whatever. Um, and it was... It was quite extraordinary. I had the most amazing letters from people, who of course thought I was Sarah Layton and would talk to me about their issues and what they should do and how I could help and please would I go and have tea with them and and all of this. I mean, it was it that was the most. That's the only time in my life uh, when I did Band of Gold. Yes, (laughs) people used to stop me in the street and Are you working?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A very different sort of of person there. but, but during the filming, I mean, eight months, I mean, that's unheard of today. You know, you go, usually you go for a job and they say, can you start 18 on 18 month-
2: months, David.
1: Yes, yeah, 18 months filming, but eight months between you going up for oh, one oh, really and bad. getting yes. the part. Yes, yes. I mean... In that eight months of convincing them, are you, just talk me through that, are you going in, are you reading, are you reading with other actors?
2: There are were you- 14 episodes, and the unique thing about that show was, all four, no there were 13 to start with, they, mm-hmm. they liked the rushes so much they gave us an extra episode, but all the scripts were done. Amazing amazing unheard of they were there were there were the 13 full one-hour scripts that was ken, taylor, what, T- ken, taylor, ken taylor, was, taylor absolutely brilliant brilliant scripts i never met paul scott tragically but um but also that wasn't that unusual i mean it's unusual in the sense
1: that it's 14 hours or 13 hours but i remember you know i always started a job and had all the scripts you know it's it's relatively recently that we've started oh, yeah, jobs where well, you're were, getting
2: the words the night before you
1: yeah it, absolutely but what um, a job what a i mean what a great screenplay it is but, you know it's wonderful
2: writing but but so i had all those episodes to work on and it's, crucially i had the books to work on mm-hmm. so one of the books the third book i mm, briefly forgotten what it's called. Um, Towers of Silence, I think, uh, is written from Sarah's point of view. It's written in the I character as Sarah. So, I mean, that's like miles and miles deep of, of information, of, of food to get out of there, of nourishment for the character. Um, and I loved it so much. And I was doing a play at the same time I was doing The White Devil. Um, Victoria Corombona, amazing character, and um, a really good production actually of *The White Devil* touring around, and and I remember just just well there were no f- we didn't do any uh, tapes then you couldn't do self tapes, so I'd have to go back to London and go and meet them and read another scene and then go back down to Devon or wherever I was to do the play, and one day I was doing I was doing a matinee in. Um, Barnstable, I think. And I got a a note on my desk saying, please ring your agent at the interval. And I thought, "Mm, don't think I will. I don't want to throw myself in an interval when I've got another after the rest of the play to do. So I waited till the end of the play and it said, ring your agent. And I rang the beloved and wonderful and unmatchable Julian Belfridge. And he said, where are you, darling? And I said, I'm in Taunton. That's where I was at House Taunton. He said, do they sell champagne? And I said, I don't know. And he said, Will you go and buy some. You've been offered Sarah Layton in The Jewel and the Crime. <laughs> well, and I did, I did. we just, the whole cast went out and said it. And it was such a, because it had literally taken since March until that was November or December. So it was. And when you're reading, so with a
1: book, you know, you a play like that, or a screenplay like that, where you've got the books and you've got the screenplay that has been written and completed. Are you... Looking in the book to find out what's missing in the screenplay, are you thinking, what can I, can I influence this? Or are you looking at both entities, the book and the screenplay, and creating the character from them? Are you making notes? Are you, are you writing stuff down? What, how, how are you creating, Sarah, for yourself?
2: One of the first things I said to Christopher and Jim when I was, when I, they, they, they met me, I told them about Sarah and they said, okay, go away and read. I think they gave me four episodes or something to read. And I read them and I went back and they said, what did you think of the scripts? And I said, honestly, I said, I'm afraid I don't think they get anywhere near the books. I just found them very sort of thin and a bit super. I was really surprised by them. And Christopher beamed at me and he said, of course. He said, that's a book. This is a film. We will have India. You'll be able to see India. You'll be able to feel all the heat and everything else. We will fill all that in. That is the nature of filming. I was very inexperienced in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will bring to this the acting. All of you actors will bring out all that texture that you are finding in the book. That's your job. And that was one of the first things he said to me. And I, so I went off and did that. I went off and found the texture. Um within the books. And I had to work quite hard on my voice because I'm, they, they were so, it was such an extraordinary, that sort of British India. And I, I, I went, I went for Celia Johnson was yes. my inspiration and I think I overdid it rather. But anyway, um, we all had to sort of do a bit of work on our voices and it makes you behave slightly differently. And I'd, I'd work on that. Yeah. Um, and I've always, with any character I ever play, I always go on the tube and look at people, which actually wasn't much used for during the Crown, But um, uh, I had been in India, so I had that sort of sense of that clutter and chaos and noise and thrill.
1: But also, Raj, I mean, you know, having done Gandhi, I mean, you know, you, you're you steeped in that sense of this British colonial yeah. sort of life, aren't you? Yeah. You, you? You know, it is about the the, the character you play and yeah, Gandhi isn't that, but yeah. he's surrounded by that. Yeah, he's absolutely. taking that on. and absolutely. You know, so your research, this is the other thing I love, is that your research for this role and over here, you know, is, it keeps you in good stead for this other role that comes up, you know, and, and, I, and I love that, that you can hand those things on to each character that you're, you're inhabiting. Yeah. But you... But also you said we had India. You also had Manchester, didn't you?
2: Yes, which was <laughs> an entirely different setup. We were in India for six months doing all the exteriors and then moved up to, to Manchester to do the interiors of all those scenes that would shot the exteriors. <laughs> so literally you walk out of, you come out and say, Oh, hello come in for breakfast and you walk through a hot door in Delhi yeah. and you're in a freezing cold studio in Manchester. Um, like
1: tw- six, seven months later. Six months
2: later. Yeah. And and uh, and often with me at slightly different size because I tend to go <laughs> So they sort of go, Geraldine, Geraldine, you you've got to breathe in a bit because this dress, this is the dress you wore in this scene one second before, and you're walking through the door and it's now looking a little bit dark So um, there were all those sort of things uh, that went on. And it was it was that was actually that was very challenging. And that was really difficult to do because of the because the atmosphere we're in. And I mean, they can create all sorts of things in the studio, obviously, mm-hmm. but. You had to thank God we'd been to India first because we could remember that heat and that the feeling of the sort of hotness coming down over your head, and it sort of slows you up when you're that hot.
1: Would you, when you got to Manchester, say you were walking out of a scene that had been in, shot in India, and you're walking into a studio in Manchester? Would Chris and Jim show you the scene yeah. before, so you yeah. would have that? Yes. Uh, but your but your own self, would you sort of be making notes about that time? Would you talk about your own energy and what? Oh you yes, bringing-
2: I mean I have a I'm a, I write I write. I haven't got one here, but I write huge amounts in my script mm. about why I'm there, what I'm there for, what I'm doing, and crucially what I've just done, gotcha. particularly in this instance, because if you know, I had to write down whatever it was that was going on in the outside, very excited that Ahmed has turned up yeah. um, uh, to get him to meet the family, know they're going to be critical of him because he's an Indian. How am I going to deal with this? Um Deep breath, you know, Mildred, mother's going to be trouble and and all that sort of storing up for myself. And I would really that was my Bible. I mean, I used to keep that very, very close to my heart. And I had huge notebooks and diaries. Yeah. So I had I had diaries of all the shooting days in India. Um, and do, you do,
1: that, do you always do that now? Is that something that is uh, is that become part of how you work?
2: I hope so. I might have got a bit lazy sometimes, but um, <clears throat> the, for me, the almost the best bit of the job is the research aspect of it, and is finding out what it's like to live in seventeenth century England. You know what it, who was I, I had this dream i've never done it, but when I was at drama center, I wanted to make this thing a sort of timeline of history and put it up on, on as a sort of freeze all around my room so that I could go, this play is set in 1895 Germany. Who was on the throne in England? Who was writing music in, in England? Who was painting pictures in France? Who was cooking food in Italy? Whatever it was, place this event of the of the story I'm doing, put it into history and find out, as much as I can about that history around it. And, I mean, that is such a fantastic privilege just to be able to do that. Yeah, and that's my favourite that. bit as
1: well. Yeah. I, love that. I love that. And also that thing of don't presume, don't presume that, you know, this person can get from this place to this place without having to go through Spending all the, days. you know, you know with yeah. the timeline, what, what wages are, what <laughs> his circumstances are, you exactly. know, the sort of conventions of the time. And um, you know, sometimes you like all those things. You have to sort of know the rules in order to break them. But I think you have to know the history in order to know that you're you, you, you might have to do some sort of artistic license in it. Yes, and, see,
2: and then you know? do. And I mean, very often a script will you'll read a script and you'll go, "Oh, well, that's not quite right for what I've discovered in in truth." So then you have to you have to make the script has to work. So you have to bring whatever you can from reality in order to make it work, to make the character work for you and for it.
1: It was such a, because it was Granada and sort of um, that sort of costume drama had been very much a BBC sort of show to make. It was quite, there was quite a lot of pressure around that production, I should imagine. That, you know, there was it was quite lavish. It wasn't as, you know, you'd done Gandhi and obviously that had a film budget and all these extras and stuff, but it was still a
2: big budget production. Did you feel the weight of that? They obviously did. It was huge because it was to take a British crew and shoot for six months in India all around. We were all around India. Mm -hmm. Um, And Dennis Foreman had, I think, had the idea of doing the Paul Scott books. And he started in order to find out how to do it. He started with staying on. Um, And he did that first to see what it was like, to see how if it was possible to shoot in India Um, and met people there. Uh, we, there, oh, there was a cook on Gandhi our chef you know the guy doing all the food for this yeah. British crew we had a British crew and an equal-sized Indian crew on Gandhi which was amazing so lunch you could either have an English lunch or an Indian lunch um but the the guy Phil Phil Neville I think his name was no that's a footballer
1: yeah <laughs> I, I don't I don't think he would have been there
2: <laughs> anyway, guy, commentating we, on it. Yeah. <laughs> this Petra, I just at one point said, This these leeks, you cook leeks, this is amazing. We're in Rajasthan. And he said, I'm choosing, I'm going around. He said, I'm doing a big series next year for Granada based on the Raj Quartet. And I'm making, I'm planting vegetables now here for this film Gandhi, that we will then use next year. I mean, what wow
1: he was brilliant. choosing
2: cows to to sort to of bring on whatever they do yeah. um and that was that was so exciting to see what's going on behind this huge production so it was massive yeah. um and we had wonderful indian uh, sort of organizers uh varmik Thapa, who is a nature brilliant nature photographer mm-hmm. he was our sort of make do man he 'd go and talk to the police to make sure we could shoot in that village um and we 'd only be there for two days or whatever it was uh finding places an enormous crew I mean it was massive, and I remember about three weeks in somebody coming up and saying they are thrilled with the rushes we 're all they 're absolutely thrilled and They've given us they've, They don't want to cut The rushes So they're going to Give us an extra episode That's oh, never happened To me before That's that, amazing you know, It was extraordinary And Charlie and I Did the first day <laughs> We did um, We did a scene In a Haveli Up in Rajasthan In this beautiful the Lake yeah. Palace Hotel oh, it's a beautiful cool. scene Incredible Well that was The first day shoot No they, Yes That was day one um, And they have A ceremony In India <laughs> <laughs> On movies Where they have A sort of ritual That they they go through <laughs> this. This sweet sort of sadhu came in in all his robes with a coconut, and he wanted to crack the coconut over the camera to give us good luck. And Ray Good and Christopher were going, "No, no, 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 not! not thank you so much. That's marvellous, but please, not on the camera. It's yeah. a little bit precious. Crack it um, on Charles's head. I'll oh, do it on Charles's head. It's a much better idea. I mean, you
1: know, that you were all very young at that time it was sort of you there's you and and julie and, and um and charles and stuff but then you had people like eric porter and, oh uh, my god yeah. and, uh, and peggy ashcroft and peggy and i was about to ask you about peggy yeah. she became a real mentor for you didn't she she became she a great friend
2: she became a huge friend and uh she was in america doing a play doing all's well when we were rehearsing we had we had we had about a five day read through or something on Jewel and Peggy wasn't there. Yes. So Tim, Judy Parfitt, and I had to go up with Jim and Christopher to Peggy's house in Hampstead to read through her scenes with her. It was the first time I'd met Peggy Ashcroft. I was a dresser. When I left school, I was a dresser at the um, Aldwych with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I used to work. I worked with Liz Spriggs when she was doing Delicate Balance with Peggy. And I used to stand in the wings and watch it because I was a theatre person. I just used to stand and watch all the time. And one day Peggy saw me in by the stage door and she said, hello, I don't know who you are. And I said. Um, um, my name's Geraldine and I'm Liz's dresser. And she said, you're interested in the theatre, aren't you? And I went, um, yes, I'd like to be at you. She said, I've seen you watching. Keep going, dear. And that was my in- introduction to Peggy. We, so the first time I met her was in her house doing this read-through. <coughs> and we read these scenes. And Jim came up to me afterwards and went, what's the matter? He said, why didn't you? You weren't there. You were totally disengaged. You read that appallingly badly. And I went... <laughs> It was Peggy Ashcroft. It was my huge heroine. I mean, mm. she was so glorious, and and I was just totally overwhelmed to be literally in her presence. And she was she poured us all tea, and she was adding milk to cups of tea. And every time she asked somebody if they wanted milk, she said milk in a slightly different way. She went milk, milk, <laughs> milk, and and I stay on. And then she said at the end, she said Christopher which way do you think Barbie would say milk? And she was doing, she was trying out how oh. Barbie Bachelor, her character, she was getting in, she was doing it. She was doing ah, the work. Brilliant. brilliant. And I Working
1: just. All the time.
2: All the time. And which blouse? I mean, she was just fabulous. I loved her. And we became extremely good friends. And, and you both
1: a, won Best Actress. We Film. You shared it for we've She's Been shared. Away, which is an amazing film.
2: And she sent me a. She sent me a telegram, which I still have, that says, Laurel, rejoicing, love Hardy.
1: <laughs> That's so fantastic. <laughs> but was it important for you to have someone in your life who was, you know, was she a mentor? I know she was a friend, but could you go to her and sort of talk about insecurities? Completely. or what? Completely,
2: right. completely. When I did Cymbeline at the National, she was my, she. this years, years later, she, um, she sort of talked me through it. She talked to me about the character, Imogen, and she, she was so kind and so um, resolute. She was incredibly strong, Peggy, and quite rude and mm-hmm. quite sexy. She was always talking about sex mm-hmm. um, and just just fabulous. And she was, and she came, oh no, it was after she saw Merchant of Venice, which I also did with, we did, a, the film we did was with Peter Hall. Mm-hmm. I then did Cymbeline for Peter and then Merchant of Venice. And the the best thing that happened to me in The Merchant of Venice was Peggy coming round after the first night and walking into my dressing room and going, every golden word, and then going out again.
1: Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. I mean, I think that, you know, the, that passing it on in a way, there's a sense of having that mentor figure. I had one in my life, which was the actor James Hazeldean.
2: Oh, did you? Yeah. Jimmy was fabulous. I,
1: I went with Jimmy when I was like 17.
2: Did you? the course.
1: And he became such a great friend of mine. Sadly, he's no longer with us. No. But it, it was very important for me in my younger life as an actor to sort of just have a touchstone of someone who I could say, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, you know, just to say, we all feel like that. Yes, That's okay. Exactly. You know, it's okay. Just walk walk bravely into it you know there's exactly. no wrong sort of stuff. and
2: do you do it do you it was talking about working at schools do you work with
1: yeah I try to yeah. yeah I mean I really do I think part of doing this podcast is that is the sense that you know there is a lot about our profession that is slightly mystifying to people totally. on the outside and
2: completely it. inaccurate
1: yeah and one of the other things for me growing up which I wanted to talk to you about is when I the my first encounter with actors was when I went to the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool uh-huh. and they'd all hang out in the foyer. And I went up to all of those people like Anton Lesser and Pete Potterswaite. And and I I felt like I was being a nuisance. None of them treated me like I was being a nuisance. No. All of them were open and stuff. And it was great. But where was that for you? Was it school for you that you first got the bug? Was it, was it a school play or anything?
2: Well, apparently it was home. I actually... Um I was looking for some photographs for somebody who was just having her 70th, who was a great friend of mine when we were little. And I was talking to her sister and I'd find these photographs of us all dressed up as gypsies come about in the garden. And she said, she said, you know, you were always writing plays and bossing us about and, and being a director. And, and she said, you were always telling us what to say and where to go. So I think it started very young. I think it was about trying to find a voice for myself. I think I, I felt quite um, crushed in a way uh, at home, certain aspects of it. And in order to, to, to find out who I was, I probably spoke too loudly. And, and I was very sort of extrovert. I was always doing handstands and climbing trees. I was a real tomboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I used to write epic poems and I mean, epic, terrible, terrible yarns about, uh, uh, medieval princesses and, and knights and all of that right. that went on for hours and I used to write reams and reams and reams and did you
1: read Were you? Were you <clears throat> did you read stuff voraciously was that yes awesome? I
2: was a huge reader but I used to read I used to charge we had these drawing they had these curtains in the drawing room and I used to charge people to come and listen to me reading
1: <laughs> well that is great you'd commercialise it right off the bat that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> what was your charge? Was I can't it... <laughs> remember. <laughs> well, wow, that shows a very, very good, good head on your shoulders, because you've uh, you, you've also said that you know, you went to a posh school, but you weren't particularly posh yourself. Is there there an element there of reinventing yourself? Totally, completely. I
2: failed my 11 plus because I was so miserable and unhappy at home because things were awful around then. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember coming down to breakfast, my, my father saying, oh, well, then she's got to go to Down House because I'd failed my 11 plus. And I felt, I mean, I was always sort of No, I was never quite top of my class, but I was usually second or third, much to my father's fury that I wasn't first. I was. But being second was absolutely not worth it anyway. So I was obviously fairly capable, but I completely screwed up my 11 plus. So I couldn't go to the grammar school where I was. Mm-hmm. meant to go um so i went to this school that my sister's godmother had gone to called downhouse which is actually a fantastic school but it is all girls and it's boarding and t- when i went there in 1962 it was terrifying i was 11 i was very young because my little school had packed up um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 closed early or something And I just remember being completely overwhelmed and I was quite badly bullied for the first couple of terms. And you, in those places, you have to find your, you have to find who you are in order to be able to stand up in the crowd, not stand above the crowd, just be part of it. And if you, if you feel downtrodden and you're squashed down, you will be, you know, you'll be trodden on. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to learn quite quickly And my mum had sent all the wrong clothes because she was so hopeless. She sent I had all the wrong clothes. So I used to get laughed at Mm -hmm. Um, and we weren't allowed home more than three weekends a term or something ghastly. So I became quite quickly, I became the class clown and I had a, I had a pencil tin. I remember it. And after lunch on Friday, I had this silly pencil tin that sort of the lid didn't shut properly and it clicked, it made a noise. And I just did a sort of, silent routine in the sort of style of Buster Keaton. I, I like to think but it probably wasn't. But people used to sit around and just roar with laughter at this thing. And one day the English teacher, Theo Barnsley, came in early and she said, I think I'm going to put you in a play. Right. And he sort of said it as if it was punishment. <laughs> right, if you're going to start showing off before my English lesson, you can go into a play. So I started going to plays and I just... I found I found myself. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. And then I found I had a wonderful teacher and found Shakespeare.
1: Yeah.
2: And then I was home and dry. Really.
1: It's amazing that though, isn't it? That I mean, that when you find it. I mean, I had it in my junior school. I too failed my eleven plus, but I in my junior school I did some plays, and I remember just going, "Oh, this is." I, I equated it with somebody who could suddenly find they could kick a football or yeah. hit a tennis ball or whatever. I suddenly went. Oh, I know how to do this in some way.
2: Uh, Are we lucky though to have found that?
1: Yeah, I but mean, then w- when I failed my eleven plus, the school I went to did no drama at all, uh, and I really missed it. And it was that th- it was missing it that made me go, what, am, "What? What's happened here?" And I had to go and find it again. But and we- how did you find it? Well, I did that thing of I walked up to people and said, "Hi, my name's David. I want to be an actor," and I've always been so grateful to grow up in Liverpool where the arts were taken really seriously. It's a cultural city. It's very proud of its culture. So nobody really took the mickey out of me for, for doing that. They just asked me why I didn't want to be in a band. But some people said, oh, have you tried the Everyman? Have you tried, you know, and I I found the Everyman and I went in and I was welcomed in. And, and, that's and was it that was doss's
2: time. It was just
1: after Dosser. Was yeah? it? So oh. it was Peter James was the main character oh, yes, then. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was really inclusive. You know, and it wasn't I auditioned
2: there hundreds of times. I was too posh. They always <laughs> told me
1: I was too posh. Was that when Jonathan Price was running?
2: No, no, it was before that. It was uh, it was Dossa and the, Doss. Matt Kelly was there. Jude, Julie Walters, Pete. Yeah, it was great, the great times. And Nick I was. There's that great
1: photograph of Nick them all Waderson, outside there. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they did there. that wonderful
2: cabaret show they used to do.
1: Yeah, they did the. I mean, oh,
2: cabaret, I yeah. loved that place. I used to go and see them, and I they couldn't get in. They said I was too posh. So I adopted a very curious Cockney accent for a while, because <laughs> in those days, in the early 70s, it was very unuseful to be posh in any way. And I had been to this ridiculously posh school. So I did sound a little bit peculiar.
1: We'll be back with more chat after this.
0: Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But when you had that idea that you could do it as a profession, I mean, it's true that did your father kick you out? Was it, it didn't go down well, did it?
2: Not at he all. Said, he said, no, I have paid a fortune sending you to this expensive school. You will not be an actor. Absolutely not. And if you insist, that's it, as far as I'm concerned, you're out. So I was out. And not only that, but the old bastardo said that I was living at home so he could claim some sort of tax relief. So I didn't get any grant. I mean, I didn't get a grant anyway because he had too much money, but, but I didn't even get a living grant. And I was, uh, Christopher Fetis at Drama Centre, and I told, I said, I, I can't afford to be here. And he said, well, you'll have to leave. You've got a rich daddy. Go and talk to your local council. So I went to Reading and they said, but your father's claiming that you live at home. And I said, I, didn't, I don't live at home. I haven't lived at home since he threw me out. Um, so in the end, they they did give me a grant, and he. In the end, we became extremely good friends, and um, thank God. And but you had uh, to
1: be successful to become. I
2: had fan. to be successful. I had to be nominated for a, my first BAFTA nomination. I've never achieved the thing, but my first nomination. He sent me a cheque for a hundred pounds and said, "Buy yourself a nice frock."
1: <laughs> but that must have been. I mean, you know, we can pass over that. But that must have been a really traumatic time for you here you are embarking on something which is not in your family you know they don't know anything about it it's a completely new sort of uh, furrow you're plowing for yourself and you haven't got the support of of your family that's quite a low lonely... in a way
2: in a way that made me stand up that okay. made me i i i auditioned for for every drama school going and got turned Rada told me i'd fallen like a horse at the first hurdle um, uh, I got into central Weber Douglas and Lambda, I think, but somebody said, you should go to the drama center, go to the drama center and do an audition. And I went to this place and met these five people and just came out. And went, I don't, I don't care. I will come back here and audition till they take me in. I thought they were fabulous and they did take me in. And I remember at the end of my first term, walking up Haverstock Hill and i've i well i haven't been religious since i was about 13 but actually thanking some great power for giving me the huge privilege of going to that school and of and of doing it on my own of mm. doing it without the support because it just made me it made it brought the grit you know i had to do it i had to work really hard i couldn't rely on that every single holiday i was working in a uh, as a sort of secretary somewhere in park lane and i was at gordon's gin or somewhere yeah. in the irish tourist board and doing all this temporary work all through the holidays because i had to pay and i used to sing in a pub in the evenings or be a wow. barmaid yeah i had a, i mean it was it was it was amazing and it it helped me find who i was
1: it's that uh, on the podcast we also had derek Jacobi at one point and he said that i said to him what advice would he give he said you know if you want to be an actor don't be an actor but if you have to be an actor, be an actor. And I thought that was great. And there's Brilliant. something in that story of you Absolutely. saying that you know there is no choice.
2: Well, that's that, it. And you know, when I meet young, I meet that I I love working with young actors. I'm, I get a little bit bored of being the oldest person by miles in every cast I'm ever in now. But never mind. But but meeting young actors you, and they just sort of some of them you just go, no, you haven't got the you you have to have you have to not be able to do anything else. If there's an alternative, if you go, well, I'll try it for a bit. Although when I left drama school, I didn't think I'd ever get work. Um, and and I thought, I'll try it. I left when I was 22 and I thought, I'll give it till I'm 30. And if it's not working, I'll give up because I've been told by everybody under the sun that this is going to be absolutely useless and it's not going to work. But I'd seen... Janet Sussman doing Chekhov on the telly, directed by Jonathan Miller, and thought, "God, look at that! Wouldn't that be incredible?" I'd seen Eric Porter play Lear, and just got completely overwhelmed by the genius of that language and all rest of it. Um, and I started off in rep very slowly, but but it sort of was happening. And and then it, it got to the point where I was sort of nearly thirty, and I thought, "This is actually beginning to be really." Good fun. I actually bought my own flat when I was 30. And that was unheard of. I mean, incredible. No help from anybody. But Um, talk
1: talk me through Dummy, because Dummy... It's a big job for you, isn't it? It's your front and centre of it. It's a massive... I couldn't find it. I've not seen no, it, so I couldn't been, find
2: an it. taken out on it. Uh, but, it was a true story written by... written. It's Frank Rodham who yeah. went on to do great things with Masterchef. Yes, he transformed British television with Masterchef. <laughs> totally exactly. World television, I think yeah. he'd say. Um, uh, Hugh Whitemore did the adaptation of this true story of this... He read a headline saying... Deaf prostitute goes to prison for manslaughter, and he thought, "Wow, I wonder how that happens." So they researched this amazing character, fabulous young woman up in Bradford, and created this story and then Frank had to cast it i i'd done an audition for Patsy Pollock, wonderful, wonderful Patsy yeah. Pollock, who was casting director at the Royal Court, and I did a sort of general audition, and she gave me a, my first job in London theatre was understudying Jane Asher in Christopher Hampton's play Treats, which was right. very, very exciting. I never got on, but anyway, it was good mm-hmm. fun. And so Patsy knew me from that. Uh, she then cast one episode of The Sweeney, mm-hmm. and uh, there was one episode that had a very good part for a girl and she got me that part which was my first ever telly and i thought i was very glamorous i played a sort of croupier girlfriend of dennis waterman's then like a few months later they said they this i didn't have an agent and um Somebody rang me up and said, Somebody saw you on telly last night in the Sweeney and wants to meet you for a film. Go to this place and this place. And I thought, Oh, God, help. I was a croupier. I'll have to be very, very smart. And I'm not, I'm never smart. But I got very dressed up for me, and went to this place. And there was Frank Rodham. And he opened the door and he said, Oh, good. You're not too smart. And I thought, Damn. I thought I was doing really well. But he thought I was good and sort of ordinary. And he told me this story of this girl who had had this extraordinary life up in Bradford as profoundly deaf and had, had, had ended up in prison. And, um, he said, I'm interested in you playing this part. And I just went, why? How extraordinary. He said that I've done played a croupier. Um, anyway, and of course it was everything I've ever wanted to do in an acting part, wouldn't be able to do it now because quite rightly, you should have had a deaf actress. And he thought about trying to find a deaf actress, but he said he had to do it so quickly. And it was so difficult because it was a drama documentary. So we were in the real places. We were absolutely, I was, there were only about three actors in it. Otherwise it was all real people. Um, So he had to be able to communicate with me very directly. So he decided he had to have a hearing actress. And he said, I will give you six weeks to prepare this part and I want you you've got to convince everybody in England that you are profoundly deaf. I mean, <laughs> sort of an acting challenge. And it was but it was complete. And what did
1: you do in that? Situation? I went
2: up to Bradford and yeah. I worked with the woman's real uh, uh social worker and I went to a lot of deaf clubs and I learned her signing. She refused to learn signing. Um mm-hmm and had her own way of communicating that was absolutely brilliant and very feisty. And then Frank got very worried that doing all that would be too big on the screen. He said, you've got to keep it down. You think, you know, I mean, it it is what it is. Um, But I had six weeks and I remember working on... This, there's a very good school near me in, in South London for deaf people, and I just went there all the time and just watched these children and listened to them and saw how they communicate. And the thing I love about deaf people, the joy, the joy you see communicating, you see them at bus stops, and, and it's this wonderful, real communication. Um,
1: but all that research that you're doing in that six weeks, and, and with the other jo- all your other jobs that you've done, the research, that's your own initiative, isn't it? You're doing that. I mean, production can set things up sometimes, but you're doing it. I think that's the thing for me that I learned was don't wait for them to set up the meeting. You get Oh in God, absolutely.
2: It. No, you no, know, no, absolutely.
1: You know, you find your own research, go and find those places, do that yourself. Don't, nobody's going to set that up. No, absolutely. You.
2: They gave me, they put me in touch with a social worker. Mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't see her because she was in prison. She came out of prison was around on the shoot but she mm-hmm. would when I was preparing she wasn't. But I they set me up with a social worker but otherwise it was entirely me and I I went off and I did a day when I thought I'm going to do this and I pretended to be deaf. I I went into shops and and asked for things as a deaf person and I remember hearing people laughing at me and just going that's that's a key. That's what deaf people they see that you're laughing at me. They don't hear that you're laughing at me, but they see it. Yeah. Um, and I, I learned such a lot about just being a human being, yeah. doing that job and, and being in the roughest streets of Bradford. I love that place. I love Bradford. And I met fantastic people there. And then and again, met,
1: Band of Gold later and on. And Band
2: of Gold, which was great because I'd done, I could, you know, they went, you've been in Jewel in the Crown. You can't possibly play, do Band of Gold. And I'm hang on I did yeah, no, this got, is my work. In, this is what i do
1: that's what i mean about bringing those characters from your past into the ones exactly. you're doing now and stuff and those were so i mean god my bookshelves are so all over the place with that sort of stuff but it, it always comes in handy for different roles Yeah. so just to i mean there's so much we could talk about but just to jump forward a bit so when you when you're doing portia yeah in merchant of venice with uh, uh peter hall the, you're, you're working with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Now that's a very different dynamic. That's a that's sort of a big production. It's bells and whistles on it. It's you know it's going to be a big. A lot of eyes are going to be on it. Terrifying. Are you fine. approaching that type of work and that type of character in any different way to the, what you would be doing on on your in your television roles?
2: Well. Peter Hall has a wonderful, I, I loved working with him on Shakespeare. He said, you don't have to do any work at all on these characters because it's all in the words. It's mm-hmm. all in the verse. He, he would do, use the verse. Um, so you don't have to think about what's my character like here. You just, it is in the words. You say the words and you will be the character. And that's an extraordinary thing to experience. You've got to have a writer of the calibre of Shakespeare to be able to do that. But, you know, you've done those Yes, um, and and it's um, so that was completely extraordinary. The pressure was of doing the. Fir- I mean, Dustin was one of the first Americans to come and do Shakespeare in London, mm-hmm. and he'd he'd spoke he'd gotten apparently got in touch with Peter and said he wanted to come to London to do Shakespeare, and Peter said, "Any idea what you'd like to play?" And he said, "Yes, I'd like to play Hamlet," and Peter went, "Ah." ah have you done any Shakespeare? I said, no, no.
1: <laughs> maybe one, you then. could
2: start with something, you know, well, yeah, Hamlet's great, but let's start with maybe Malvolio or maybe Shylock. Um, and he lumped, he went for Shylock. And I'd done Cymbeline for Peter a couple of years before and then back the film. Um, and he came up to me and he said, I want you to play Portia in Merchant Venice. And I went, oh, she's so mealy my, She's such an extraordinary such a weird character. I don't know if I really want to play that. Who's playing Shylock? And he said, Dustin Hoffman. And i went, ah, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Maybe I could have a look at this. So obviously, I mean, and, and of course, working on Portia, she's the most fantastic character. I mean, I played her for a year, six months in London and six months in New York, and I did not lose. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't bored for one second. And a lot of that was down to Dustin Hoffman because he is so incredibly Present and there and alive on the stage. He never repeats anything, which can be very alarming, of course. But um and do you think that's do you think that's as simple as saying that he's an American method actor?
1: Or do you think it's to do with is it to do with the his schooling as opposed to our
2: schooling? I I feel that Americans have an affinity with Shakespeare that we don't have. I think that there's something about the American, the tone of American that actually goes along with may- maybe it's more similar to to rural Warwickshire wow. than, than certainly than RP, um, oh. because it's not a clip language at all. It's like jazz. Shakespeare is jazz. So that's more American than British. And I think once he'd got, he would got, he was furious that he couldn't improvise. He'd come in and go, I don't want to say, I don't want to say this. I want to say this. And he'd go off on the great spiels of all this. And Peter would go, yes, that's very interesting. Uh, But can we just, let's have a look at this scene, see if we can make this work. And he worked, Dustin worked incredibly hard and came in one day and said, I've just realised you can't improvise this shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're quite right. That that should be on a (laughs) t-shirt. That that is great. (laughs) But it's, it's interesting, the RP thing, though, because I remember when I first got to the RSC, I was so intimidated by the whole thing. And Sis Berry got hold of me, and we were doing some of the speeches. And she said, What are you doing? And I said, Well, I'm, I'm doing what you're spe- I'm talking like that. It's just do it as yourself, just do it in your own voice. And suddenly it just started to come alive for yeah. me. And it was amazing. Man. Yeah, it's incredible. It was such a huge production. And you know, you go to Broadway. How how was that experience for you? Going with the big Shakespeare, a big Shakespearean play with a big, huge Hollywood star. You know, what was that like?
2: Well, it was it was sort of easier for me because all the pressure was on him. Right. You know, people were coming into that. Nobody had heard him. Nobody had a clue who I was. They mm-hmm. they they were coming to see Dustin Hoffman on stage, which he'd been in. He'd done Death of a Salesman. Uh, uh fairly recently in America, hugely successfully with John Malkovich, I think. Mm-hmm. Um but this was this was Dustin doing Shakespeare. Dustin playing Shylock in New York. Mm. You know, this was this was huge for him, and he was terrified. He lost his voice when we opened in London because uh, he was so unused to playing. We were in the Phoenix Theatre, and it's it's quite a sort of long theatre. Quite you have to reach quite far back. Um, and and, it and was, no
1: microphones. Don't, absolutely. Now now, you know, now everybody wears microphones.
2: Yeah. No, none at all. And he had he had lost his voice, and it was difficult. But he found it, and he found his way of doing and he was brilliant. And when he got to New York, he was home. He was playing his character at home. And did and it he, change?
1: Did, did, did yes. the character, yeah. Yes,
2: yes. He, was, he was much naughtier. Right. He was, as Shylock, I mean, Shylock became a little sort of imp and he'd sit on the edge of the stage and swing his legs. And, I mean, I went, I, well, uh, in the trial scene where Portia turns up dressed as a lawyer, male mm-hmm. lawyer, and um, the first line is, which is the merchant here and which the Jew? And to, because Antonio and Shylock are arguing and she comes in to try and solve it. And I walked onto the stage one night, no Dustin. Lee Lawson was standing there, everybody else was standing there, no Dustin. And I thought, oh God, what's he doing? So I went, which is the merchant here? And where is the Jew? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Dustin came up, he put, put his head up from under a desk with his thumbs up like that, he was so thrilled. <laughs> oh wonderful uh, and he just so he'd set up he'd set up things like that he sort of test you, which was actually once you once once you knew the character and the play so well you could you could sort of give as good as you got, and it was absolutely fabulous, and he wanted to do um Taming the Shrew with me. We were going to do Petruchio and Kate, and it never happened. He caught Spielberg into it and said he, he tried to get him to do it, but he was understandably not interested. Anyway, we did we never did it, but uh, it was quite a nice thought.
1: But is there a difference for you in the in building a character when you're looking at a film or television? Or theatre, or is it always the same sort of process for you? Is it is the difference just purely technical, as in breathing and voice and stuff like that? Is build, when you're building a character, is there any difference?
2: No, I don't think there is, other than this Shakespeare thing that you just don't have to worry about building the character in Shakespeare. With a play, uh, the last play I did was um, a play about T. Lawrence, and I played yeah. Charlotte Shaw and Lawrence Bernard in Arabia. Shaw's- Lawrence of Arabia. Um, And um, uh, I had to do a lot of research on that to find out about her. And she was fabulous. Of course, much more fabulous, in fact, than in the play, didn't give her enough Mm -hmm. time. But anyway, um, no, I would absolutely do the research and and find out. And I I always have a secret. That's my I always try to have a secret as a character, Uh, whatever it might be. And and it is a secret. I keep it as a secret, but because it gives you a sort of inner place to go to if you get if you get very nervous, which I do less now, but I used to get fantastically nervous on stage. Um, And I think. I think we all we all have our true histories inside us. When we're playing a character, we can't we can't because we've just been playing it for four weeks. So to give us it gives you a sort of background somehow, um, and some depth. And just to have to know something that I know that you don't know and that you don't need to know and that I'm not going to tell you, is it just it gives you a little bit of heft, I think that
1: um And that can change as well. I mean, during a production, particularly with Shakespeare, I think there's there's something that um I constantly feel when I'm doing Shakespearean roles that as I'm going along in the run, everything will start to sort of illuminate in a different way. It keeps giving to me in a way. Isn't like that fantastic? Else. It's a, a weird. I and mean, that thing of something will happen in my life or so I read something in the paper or whatever or I'll see something on the news and then I'll go to the theatre that night and I'll go, oh, I never
2: thought of yeah, this. Like, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And that that's what I love about the theater. That's what's that's what's so wonderful about taking your day into the theater and everybody else is coming to the audience and they've all got their day and they have the, the audience has that energy and it's different every night. Mm. Isn't it? And you it just is. get a different feel from the audience and they've all been different places and everybody's bringing different stuff into the theater and I miss it very much. I ha- I really want to do a play. Um
1: And how are you at the end of a? I mean, aren't you able to leave a job? Are you able to leave the character behind? uh, You know, at the end of and the end of the night or the end of the filming day. Do you carry it around with you at all?
2: Only oh, to my husband. I really, I really do carry it around. I did Death and the Maiden for six months. Oh, the yes. Errol yeah. and Dauphin play, and he said, "Oh, when's this play finishing?" Because that was, I mean, inevitably, if you if you're in a place that's very very dark and difficult, it's quite hard to get out of. And I used to think that a film or TV. Job, I would take as long to get out of the character as I had played the character for. <laughs> that stopped with Jewel in the Crown. Yes, <laughs> eighteen absolutely. months was too long. <laughs>
1: you couldn't carry that around. <laughs> I carry that,
2: you. that on for eighteen months, but it, you have to shed it. I mean, I'm shedding a character now. I've just finished something now, and uh, and I sort of I'm I'm I miss a character who I actually stopped playing two or three years ago in Canada, and and I still miss her because she responded with the character Anne with an E it was a version of Anne of Green Gables and I played Marilla Cuthbert which she's the most wonderful character and it was very very difficult to do and I found it very hard to get into her but once I was there we did three series I found her quite magnificent to play because there was so much to do. It's like Shakespeare. You Mm -hmm. suddenly go, oh, and there's that, and you can go down that channel down there and explore that. And that's interesting. I never, you know, I'd never even considered that she could be like that. Oh, there's that over there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find her really quite hard to shed. I literally miss her. I miss the character.
1: Yeah, I have characters like that where I just suddenly, suddenly... Feel very alive and about the fact that oh he could do that he could do that and then they go oh but you're not playing him anymore
2: no. <laughs> and it's so strange that's and right that, and they've gone and, they've and hard
1: gone. to explain to anybody who's not you know but your husband is a director isn't he so he's a director
2: yes so, so you're in
1: the same world but yeah. it's so it's hard sometimes to explain. I know
2: I know I really feel for people who haven't got that sort of support mm. because if somebody didn't understand that mm. would be tough. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very, very lucky. I'm. Lucky. And I can,
1: like you said, that thing of taking characters home, I don't tend to do that, but I do take the mood of a piece with me yeah. because I'm slightly a bit like a wobbly tooth. I can't stop sticking my tongue in there a little bit. I need to sort of be inside that in order to sort of give vent to it in a way. Yes, that's right. And you mentioned nerves before. Is that something, how, did, did you conquer that or did you just get used to it? Was there anything that you did to sort of get over the nerves?
2: I, I couple, when I was doing the T.E. Lawrence play um, I did an, an evening For Shakespeare's birthday Somewhere in, in the city And Fiona Shaw was there And I was talking to her And we were talking about the play And I said, I said it's, I'm at Hampstead Theatre And I said I, I get really nervous And she said Why do you get nervous? She said You've done it You don't have to be nervous anymore And I went Don't I? Do you know? People know You know You've, you've done it You've done the groundwork and I thought, "Oh, and I wasn't nervous anymore i mean it was it was it was like a window opening. I mean it was just such a simple thing to say, and she wasn't just, saying, You're marvelous. she was just saying, Come on you've But done you that. did
1: you feel because I sometimes feel this myself is that the nerves are a security blanket to me as well Is there's something about having the nerves that means that I'm doing it." And I can't let go of that sensation because I think, well, I can't let go of the nerves; otherwise, I won't be able to do this. Yes, you know, absolutely.
2: Then- <laughs> and I think nerves, to an extent, are are important. But I can nerves can knock me for six. When I was doing Merchant once, Dustin came up and said, "And her name begins with M." Just before we started the play, and I went, "What? Her name begins with M? Who is it?" And I went. <gasps> Merrill's in. Oh my god! And I couldn't. I couldn't. I could barely speak for the entire evening. I compl- and I went, Dustin. You completely screwed me for the whole night. And he said it was Arthur Miller. <laughs> now you I said you said she's. And anyway, so that was nerves totally polaxing me in the most stupid way. Mm. Um, and I have got better. I'm much better on camera. I feel, I feel very comfortable on camera. I don't know why. I've do you watch, do you
1: watch yourself on camera? Do you, no. do you so you don't? No, that's no. why is that though?
2: Because oh, it's always so disappointing. It's right. so not well, not what I was. I'm in here putting this <laughs> out, and then I look at it. I go, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. Oh. But even,
1: even the finished article, you wouldn't sit down and watch something yeah. when it's all put
2: years together. later. I mean, I don't know when I last watched Jewel. I watched a bit of blot on the landscape recently and did find it just so stupid, but some of it was quite sweet and quite funny. And I I mean, but that was like years ago. I've never, I've never, I haven't seen, I did actually watch, I did watch Anne with an E, some of it. And was quite pleased, but I it was because I was doing a Canadian accent, and it was so frightening playing such an iconic Canadian character in Canada with a lot of Canadian actors going, "Why the hell is she playing this part?" So I was just sort of checking that I'd got away with it in some way. Um, and what, long, are, what, yeah. are,
1: what are the what are the biggest changes in in the profession for you over the the years? How how has it changed?
2: It's become much more acceptable. I think it's extraordinary that at the moment one of the most successful professions to be in is in the entertainment industry because everybody needs stuff on screen. Mm -hmm. There's so much work. And that just was not the case. I remember doing a a parents evening at my daughter's school, talking to people about the theater and a a father coming up to me and saying, how could you speak to these girls and encourage them to be actors? You mustn't, you must tell them to be doctors and lawyers and all the rest of it. And you go, Oh, shut up. You know, if they're going to be actors, they're going to be actors. Um, uh, and, there's much more opportunity now for women. The parts for women are, you know, I'm working more in, since I've been 60 than I did when I was 40. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I don't know how long it'll go on for, but I just can, I, I feel so lucky. Uh, and I know it's tough. And I just, I say to people, just do, do whatever you can and keep it. Don't, Try not to get into a rut because I think actors do get stuck, and so and and it's very difficult to, not to because producers and directors go, we need somebody who is this tall, dark, thin, and spiky. Yeah, yeah. She's done that; she can do it again, and that's inevitable. So we have to say yes, but I can also do this, and we have to do everything we can um,
1: to change to change changing, people's perception of us. So, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think the other big change for me is what we touched on before, is the fact that you will do a television job now, which might be an eight or a 10 parter, but they've only got two parts <laughs> written. So as you're, as you're going along, and there's a point during the production that you catch up with the writers, Yes. And that and that's a very frightening, it's an unraveling of what you're doing. And you just have to get used to that. And to
2: learn on the hoof overnight. I mean, my I hope my brain is in great shape because I've had to this thing I've just done, which was an American thing for Apple TV. And they were literally, literally writing it the night before and going, we've changed this. You look at it and go, whoa, where's this coming from? Why? What's this? And you just you learn it and do it and talk about it on the day, and then the director goes, no, no, actually, I don't like that, so we'll go back to what it was before, and you're just in this sort of whirlwind. And I had to do uh, um, a sort of press thing for this thing, and I just said, can I have all the scripts in their final uh, shape so that I can see what on earth it is that I've been in? Mm -hmm. And it was completely different from when I'd read it in last July or whenever it was.
1: Do you think your old rep days helps you? (laughs)
2: I hope so i think I think three weekly reps set me up in very good stead <laughs> dipping between Strindberg and victorian melodramas and yeah
1: that'll help you with those
2: rewrites. I think it, I think it helps a lot and if you if you could you know meet yourself
1: when you're in your early twenties when you were coming out of drama school and stuff what do you know what you would say to her do you know what how would you give her any advice
2: i'd I'd say believe in yourself a bit more. You can you know, if people if people say you can do it, just believe them, don't argue with them, <laughs> don't don't say no, don't, don't diss yourself all the time. Cause I was I always have been for all sorts of reasons to do with history, but I've always been very good at putting myself down, at denying myself, but going, no, 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 I'm not at all. And that's that's just silly, that's just tiring. Um, and actually just go, yes, and, and keep on the front foot and keep moving forward and keep looking and keep, keep believing that you can do the things you, you dream of doing and you want to do. It's to get out there and find them and, and, and do it because it's, it's such an amazing experience. I mean, I've, I wouldn't change, and I've had really tough times. I wouldn't change a minute of the 50 years this year. I've been, oh. I've been a professional actor. I suddenly realized the other day. Well,
1: congratulations on that
2: Probably time to stop to draw up my socks But anyway
1: Not at all, not at all It's been so wonderful talking to you It's a great point to end I mean, it's been uh, Looking through your work again Has been just so Just such a pleasure I wish I could find Dummy But, um, you know, there's so much And um, thank you for
2: joining us today Thank you, David It's been great I have really enjoyed talking to you And thank you And thank you for doing this I think this podcast is such a great idea it's great cheers who am i this time
1: is a just voices and do production produced by simon lenigan music by greg Hatlock. edited and mixed by russ keffert at audio egg and presented by me david morrissey